And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. School. I was being called Bucky. It wasn't that popular. I wasn't that cool. Everybody else had the cool girlfriends. I didn't have a cool girlfriend. You know? I'm sitting here trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this life thing? How do I get friends? How do I become successful in life? But what's funny is, fast forward, I went to my 20-year reunion, drove a Ferrari. I, my 30-year reunion, I freaking paid for the whole thing, right? And, and so many of your people are like, Oh yeah, yeah, I, I remember you in high school. No, you don't. I was kind of a loser. You don't remember me, right? Paul Hutchinson co-founded Bridge Investment Group. Mr. Hutchinson's is well known around the world for his philanthropic and charity contributions with a specific focus on changing the lives of children throughout the world. How did you overcome those ethical dilemmas? You can call it karma, the universe, God, Call it whatever you want. There's a higher power very interested in us doing good. And I will tell you this, the forces of the universe that came into play that created success in areas in my companies was very... Why real estate investment? Why did you get into this game in the first place? The step one was having a really big dream. In starting out, how does that actually translate when you were building up your firm? How does that translate into the strategy that you deployed? When I want to know the secret sauce. First of all, welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They've supported the show for almost two years now. So I want to just give a shout out to them. HubSpot is an incredible tool for business leaders. If you've never tried it before, you obviously have to check it out. Uh, you've heard a lot about it on this show. But Outside of just HubSpot being amazing, they're incorporating AI tools that as a business leader, you have to pay attention to because right now we're living through the industrial age of AI. There are already tons of innovative ways to leverage AI tech to streamline and grow your business. HubSpot just launched two free AI tools that can help you automate some of the more tedious parts of marketing and managing a CRM. So Content Assistant and ChatSpot are brand new GPT-powered features they can instantly brainstorm blog topics, write ad copy, filter contacts, run reports, and so much more. They're like virtual assistants that never complain, never quit, that quickly dig through data dumps to find you the needle in the haystack. So to learn more about using AI to grow a better business, head to HubSpot.com slash artificial intelligence. Wonderful. Well, I've had a lot of key points in my life that, that, that were massive 
changes and motivators that helped me move forward and, and uh, create the life that I have now. Looking back, when I was in elementary school in junior high, and I had I had really bad buck teeth. I mean, to the point where I couldn't even shut my mouth without my teeth sticking out, and I was being called Bucky, and I I wasn't I wasn't that popular. I wasn't that cool. Everybody else had the cool girlfriends. I didn't have cool girlfriends. I didn't, you know, just and I have pimples. I mean, you know how that goes. And and I'm I'm sitting here trying to figure out, okay, how do I how do I do this life thing, right? You know, how do I get friends? How do I how do I become successful in life? And um, you know, what's funny is is fast forward. I went to my my 20 year reunion, drove a Ferrari. I, my 30 year reunion, I freaking paid for the whole thing, right? And and so many of your people are like, oh yeah, yeah, uh, I I remember you in high school. No, you don't. I was kind of a loser. You don't remember me, right? That's what motivated everybody, me. Everybody wants to remember you when you pay for the reunion or when you pull up in a, in a luxury car. Everybody exactly. wants to be your fact, friend then. One, one of the kids who was super popular way back then, who had been following me and saw what I had done. And, you know, he was in the finance world. And, you know, in his, in his version of the finance world, a fund manager is like, the god of the universe right it's the top of the top of the top if you can actually be a fund manager of a multi-billion dollar fund there's there's nothing higher i mean you can be a, a financial consultant you can all of these things but that's like the top of the rung. so at the the 30-year reunion he's like he's like and i'm gonna now introduce the person who paid for all this the master of the universe i'm like yeah don't go there but i will say that how they treated me when i was in high school was hugely motivational. It was so motivational. I, I remember running for student, running for an office, and I, I had, my slogan was, if it ain't hutch, it ain't much. And one of the kids crossed out some things and turned it into, if it ain't hutch, it ain't much. No, and changed it up, changed it to, if it ain't, if, no, hutch ain't much. I don't know what it was, but it was, it was like, oh. totally, I'm so <laughs> it like, wasn't hutch. good. Yeah, I was like, I mentally go. So it was funny because years later, he was like the bishop of this, uh, this congregation. And my cousin was getting married at the location that he, so he was there and he, he met me. He goes, Oh, Paul. He said, ah, I've been so many years. He said, um, when I was like, I, I wasn't the same guy in junior high and high and that I am today. Just so you know, I said, "Oh, that's that's good. I'm I'm happy." He said, "You don't remember that didn't affect you at all, did it? What what I said? I said, "Oh, when you when you got the whole class to start chanting, Hutch ain't much." Yeah, no, that didn't affect me. I said, "Just so you know, it affected me more than anything during my entire junior high." And he had this look, and I said, "No." I said, "It's okay. I want to give you a hug. I want to I want to thank you." Because you want to thank me? I said, yeah. I said, I, I use that as so much motivation to make sure that I would live a life in a way where somebody couldn't say, Hutch ain't much, you know? No, I freaking nailed it. And I worked my butt off when most people weren't. And so, so I, I gave him a hug and he got emotional. But things like that were, were, were a big deal to me. And I went into my dad. I remember I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I said, I, how do I how do I make friends and how do I be successful? And what does that look like? And instead of sitting down and talking to me, I mean, he he led by a great example, 
um, how to work with integrity, et cetera. But he gave me two things. He gave me a book, an old tattered book that he had in his shelf for years when he was a kid by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And then he gave me an audio program by Brian Tracy called The Psychology of Achievement. And in that book, I started understanding in the, the How to Win Friends and Influence People, I started to realize, hey, I was going about it all wrong. I was, I was trying to be cool. I was trying to say the right words to make people like me. What if instead I was genuinely interested in them? What if instead I, I, I tried to figure out what things were valuable to them in their lives and create value for them? You know, one drop of honey is more effective than a gallon of gall is what it says. And I started understanding these principles that every person I met was a thousand times more interested in themselves than they were me. Mm -hmm. And it started to transition everything. And, and then as I started listening to this audio program by Brian Tracy, the psychology of achievement, and that the premise of the entire program is simply this, change how you're thinking and you'll change your entire life. Everything, everything starts with this right here. That psychology of achievement starts with looking in the mirror and shaving a millionaire while I'm still broke, right? But visualizing that and feeling that and seeing the value that I can create for the world. In fact, years later when John and I were starting the fund, John would John tells the story a lot. He's, people ask him, how'd you become a multi-billion dollar fund? You know, did you see it in the beginning? He goes, no, I didn't, but Paul did. He said, we would be there trying to get some things done and, and we'd have a deal where we needed $25,000 by Friday and Paul would be on the phone just calling. We'd be in this little office. We paid $300 a month to be in this little teeny office that came with free Wi-Fi and, and a printer and it was so small we would hit elbows as we turned around. And we'd have the deal we needed $25,000 by Friday. And I'd be making calls, making calls, and I'd hang up a call and I'd turn around and I'd say, John, I'd put my pinky by my mouth. I'd say, John, we're going to be a billion-dollar fund someday. <laughs> and he's like, Paul, we need $25,000 by Friday. <laughs> you understand that? And, and, and then after the end of the day, he said, Paul, he said, you know that neither me or you have the background, the education, the pedigree, the, anything to run a multi-billion-dollar company. He said, you know that, right? I said, I know. But... If we have the vision of where we can go and we build it with integrity from the beginning, we will attract the right partners and we will build whatever. And we never thought we'd be, you know, we're now 48, $48 billion in assets under management. And it's due to the fact that we had that vision in the beginning and we brought on power players. We attracted those power players, one in a billion chance that those right people were there. But that all started with that changing how I thought about the world with that audio program that I got in my early, in my teens. Do you think, do you think, because I think that your, your early childhood experience, high school experience, that's pretty common. A lot of people have really shitty, not everybody, but a lot of people have really shitty experiences in high school. And do you think it was your ability to not let that impact you long-term, but you, you took on that feeling of needing to be great, but you didn't let the feeling of 
I'm going to assume that whatever anybody says about me should actually impact how I feel and how I think. And you didn't let that impact you long term because of that literature and the audiobook your dad gave you. Do you think that that's what allowed you to pursue, to persevere, to be great? Was it that the it was the it was the understanding that you know after high school no one really cares about me that much no one <laughs> no one else's opinion really matters that much because it's funny because in high school you feel that everyone's opinion matters but then you go into the real world and you you keep that a lot of people keep that and it holds them down they're always worried about what everyone else is thinking but it seems like you almost like you experience this really shitty moment but then all of a sudden you were like woken up to reality about what the real world is like at a very young age because of the, the sort of the the mentors that you learned from. And then you just you just went, you know, in a total different direction. You didn't let that high school experience hold you down. And and it gave me a level of compassion because of the fact that I was I was, you know, not that popular and had the buck teeth and then the braces, everything else and being picked on. I, I had compassion for anybody who would be in that position. And then that being at that point in my life and then having that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and I realized there's a lot of other people having shitty experiences as well. What if I can be their friend? What if I can, what if I can see through all of that? And even, even the popular kids. I can't tell you how many of the popular kids really had a crappy home life and they were they were you know, they, they weren't truly happy. Um, even though they were popular, they were the football star, the, the cheerleader, whatever else, they weren't really happy. And so feeling that compassion because I had been there and, and switching in my mind, hey, you know what? I can be a friend to have a friend. And what if I can be a friend to everybody? And then as I'm listening to this audio program, The Psychology of Achievement and realizing that I can literally create anything I want in my life, then I decided that I would create things that would add massive value in the lives of other people. And I'm telling you right now, if somebody wants to earn a million dollars, you figure out how to have a million dollars worth of value that you've added into the lives of others. You want to make a billion dollars? Figure out how to create a billion dollars worth of value in the lives of others. Yes, you can make money with, with ways that are out of integrity, but you can make a lot of money with pure integrity, making real solid value for value exchanges with people, with the businesses that you're creating and the opportunities that you're putting together. You know what? It's amazing that you thought like that at an early stage. I think it's really commendable. You know what I actually think when I'm listening to your story? I think that it allowed you to overcome all the barriers and obstacles that a lot of people experience. And you experienced yourself when you're building out this fund, this firm. Like you you deal with all the bullshit, all the negative, all the no's, all the rejections, all the why would I trust you? You know, you don't have a track record, whatever it is, you don't have the experience. <laughs> but when you when you approach something with the mindset that you have, that you're actually delivering value into the world and it's, you know, it's your it's your job to help these people's lives get better in, in whatever fashion that is. It's like the negative doesn't impact you. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't cause you to quit after six months or a year because you're like, you're an idiot for not working with me. If only you knew what I know, exactly. which is actually the most incredible entrepreneurial attitude. It's a little bit like 
you have to be a little bit nuts to think like that sometimes. Yeah. But you truly believe, you truly believe that that person's missing out by not working with you. So like you persevere. And 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 that action is actually what drives success. Because I, I fully believe if you persevere for long enough, you will be successful at the thing that you want to build. But it's just people give up too quickly. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I did too. You know, when I, I we created something in the investment side that I was comfortable if if my grandmother was qualified to invest in the fund, I would feel comfortable yeah. putting her money in there because I knew we build it with pure integrity. So it was easy when I'm sitting down with these big check writers that have built multi-billion dollar companies and say, listen, I've created something that is a true win-win-win. And, and we became the number one performing real estate fund in the country with our, within our peer group with a, uh, for like 10 years straight of, of multifamily funds over $100 million. We average like a 23.2% net net return to our investors year over year, which is fantastic. But more important than the return to my investors in my world, more important than that was the fact that nobody had to lose. We weren't scum lords. We had, we had 50,000 apartment units. And guess what? Every one of them, the tenants had a better experience because we own them than they did before we bought them, right? Little examples. We, we had um, um, a lot of our apartment complexes were in what I call the smile states. They're, you know, it's close to the border, the southern border and up California and up the East Coast, et cetera. And a lot of our tenants, because we were a dollar a square foot, $1,000 a month type apartment, you know, just small apartments, not, not C class, but not A either, you know, B, B plus type apartment complexes. A lot of our tenants were immigrants, you know, and especially in the Southern states, a lot of them spoke Spanish and, and, um, and a lot of those Latinos that were there, they didn't play tennis. We have these old tennis courts in these places. So we, every one of them, we would take down those tennis um, nets. We would put in little mini soccer fields in that space, right? We would bring in English as a second language. We would bring in the bookmobile. We would, we would take a space and create a place for, for, um, for a tutoring program for the kids and everything else. So people's caught their value of where they were staying. We weren't gonna put gold towel rods in a B class neighborhood. That's not, that's not what we were adding value. Instead, just like what I learned in how to win friends and influence people. How can I truly put myself in their shoes of the people that were living in our apartment complexes? How can I, how can I be there? And we as a team thought through that on every single one. How, what is it that, that they need? How can we create value for them? How can we create a safe place for them to raise their children at a thousand dollars a month in their apartment that they're staying? See what I mean? So creating that kind of a win together with the, the win that we had the cash that we could pay for the banks when they were having some challenges in the 2008 crisis, all of these things, a win for our employees having a positive place to work, a win for our investors having a great return, a true win-win-win type of a scenario is what allowed us to build it to the point where we're now $48 billion under management. What? When you so you so walk me through. I just want to understand the 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 inception of, of Bridge Investment Group and and I understand your eth your ethos as as an entrepreneur. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs would like to be like you, but I feel like 
they always find that going the extra mile sometimes is, is hard or expensive. Um, but you didn't let that stop you. So help me understand, help me understand why, why real estate investment? Why did you get into this game in the first place? What was the, what was, was the, you know, my, the thing that my actually, second big yeah. one. my, my first one, it was in my early twenties. Yeah. I had a, I had a call center. I had a, a program that was selling things on infomercials and whatnot. I had over 200 yeah. employees and, and I remember when I was broke and I was working a job and trying to build my company and I'd be driving home at midnight, knowing I had to wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning to go to my job to pay my bills. And, uh, and I remember rolling down my window and putting my head out the window, trying to keep myself awake. And I would yell, go ahead and sleep, losers. I'm going to be a millionaire. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out.
I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Right, I just yell that out just to keep myself awake, right? And so it was, it was that willingness to, to go that extra mile always. And, and I always had the 
the, the vision of from an entrepreneur, I would rather, I would rather work 18 hours a day owning my own hot dog stand than, than ask somebody when I could go to the bathroom at a corporate job. Right. And you've got to, as an entrepreneur, you have to have that mindset. You have to get to the point where you're like, you know what? I, I am, I am so not going to report to somebody every day. Now, if you don't have that mindset, if you're not willing to discipline yourself to go that extra mile, to work 10, 12, 14, 18 hours a day when necessary, if you can't discipline yourself to do that, you need to go get a job. You need to go find somebody to make you get out of bed. If you're, if you have to wake up to an alarm clock every morning because you're not motivated to go kick butt in the world, then you probably need a boss to motivate you to get out of bed. Right. And so, so the step one was having a really big dream. And, and I want to tell the entrepreneurs it's okay. It's okay to want a Ferrari. It's okay to want a big house. It's one. It's okay to want a, a jet and a, and a helicopter and a private yacht. It's those, those things are okay. Right. Understand. Yes. I donate millions of dollars to charity and I make a massive impact in the world, but in starting out, it, it was the things that motivated me, that got me excited. You, it's super hard to be massively motivated to go through all the no's and all the rejections if you know that you're mm-hmm. going to just donate a whole bunch of money like uh, Mother Teresa, right? And, and it's okay. It's okay to have a good lifestyle because when you get here, you'll be in a position where you can make a massive impact in the lives of other people. But it also starts right there in the beginning with making that decision then. So, so that's what I did to motivate myself. I, I had a vision board. You know, this was 30 years ago when it wasn't as cool as it is today. I had, I had pictures of, you know, houses and cars and trips and things like that, that every time I was getting discouraged, I would say, okay, there's my why. You know, I'd go walk through houses that were being constructed and visualize that being my house someday. And in my opinion, eradicating poverty on this earth or eradicating hunger on this earth is never going to happen by showing pictures of poverty and hunger to affluent people. Yes, the affluent people need to write checks to to create a platform and an environment allowing them to change, but the change is going to happen when you help those people in poverty visualize where they can be. Help them show them pictures of affluence and help them see that they have the capability of being and doing anything that they want. So whether that's the people in abject poverty, whether that's the entrepreneurs, that vision of where you want to be is number one. Without that dream, everything else doesn't matter. I love this. And and the follow-up to that was you always took the high road when you were building anything. You took the ethical road when you were building anything. Why do you think, or how did you overcome those ethical dilemmas? Was it that you always maintained that purpose, that you had focused on purpose over money? Because a lot of entrepreneurs don't default to the high road. You see Forbes 30 under 30s getting arrested and indicted. And I think that there's a lot of pressure on people to reach status and to reach these financial milestones. And I'm sure social media doesn't help, but it seems like you always steered away from that. So how did you accomplish that? What is the lesson for entrepreneurs that are struggling right now to make ends meet? Here's what I would say. 
you can call it karma, you can call it the universe, you can call it God, call it whatever you want to. There's a higher power very interested in us doing good. And I will tell you this, the, the forces of the universe that came into play that created success in areas in my companies was very, very apparent when I was living within, with, with integrity, when I was building from integrity, and when I was doing charitable work. And every single dollar that I earned, it was super joyful because I knew, I knew that I was adding value in the lives of others and I was doing so from a place of pure integrity. If you're earning money in a place out of integrity, yes, it's possible. Yes, it's possible to make a whole crap load of money and scamming people. You can be a Bernie Madoff if that's what you want to be. However, every single penny that you're spending will canker your soul and you will feel it. You'll feel the darkness. And, and that's where so many people reach that level of financial security and they're really not happy. I can't tell you how many wealthy people I know who really aren't happy because they were chasing the dollar and they mm -hmm. weren't creating true value in the lives of other people as they're moving along. And, and part of the problem is this, Scott. If you, if anybody is an entrepreneur, if you're entrepreneurs, if anything in their mindset thinks that we live in a zero sum world, meaning this, the only way that I'm going to make a billion dollars is if other people lose a billion, right? If I make a million, somebody's got to lose a million. I've got to take that million from somewhere in order for me to make money. If there's anything in your subconscious mind that believes that we live in a world of scarcity, then you're going to act out of integrity to make money because down inside you're thinking that you're taking from others anyway, right? Changing mm -hmm. that perception is vital. It's so important that people truly understand that we live in a world of abundance, that you can create a true win-win-win across the board. The reason why so many people think that we live in a world of scarcity is many economics books, if you open up the book and the very definition of economics for a lot of books is the division of scarce resources, which is a fallacy. There is enough raw resources in this world where every one of us could have all the food we could ever eat, all the houses we could ever live in, all the, all the clothes we could ever wear, right? The only thing that keeps people in this mindset is thinking that we are dividing scarce resources. It, it reminds me of a story back in the, I believe it was in the 1600s. There was uh, maybe 1700s. Uh, there was a man who was knighted by the Queen of England because of his, his thesis statement paper that predicted the end of the empire because of a shortage of well blubber, right? So we laugh today. We think, okay, yeah, the end of the empire because of a shortage of well blubber. Guess what? That's that scarcity mentality that so many of us live in still today is we think, oh, there's not enough. There's not enough. No, if, if you go back even to the 1600s, and you ask an astrologer, what's your definition of what you do as an astrologer? He would tell you, oh, well, an astrologer studies how the stars and the planets and the sun revolve around the earth. And the very definition of what they did 
precluded them from understanding the truth that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. The very definition of economics in most places, that division of scarce resources, that definition precludes people from understanding the truth that indeed we live in a world of abundance and we can create value for everybody in, in your pursuit. How does that actually translate when you were building up your firm? How does that translate into the strategy that you deployed? When I want to know the secret sauce, you said you were giving exceptional returns while living in integrity, living in alignment, understanding that's win, win, win across the board. For a lot of people, that's ideal circumstance that they can only hope to achieve. So what, how does that actually translate into business strategy they, they, for you, for you as Absolutely. an example? So, so I'll take it on each piece. So first of all, John and I, in the beginning, owning 50% of the company each, realizing we don't have the, the background, the education, et cetera, to really run a company like this. So finding people who have really done something amazing in their life, who are super qualified in the right areas that we needed, bringing them on board. Perfect example is a, is a guy by the name of, of uh, Kelly. Kelly came into our office. We were pretty small. We had three or four employees. And he said, hey, guys, I really want to be a part of what you guys are creating, what you're doing. And we said, hey, we're not, we're not hiring right now. He goes, no, no, no. I don't even need you to pay me anything. I will, I will take a place in that corner. He says, over there in that corner right there, I'll bring my own desk and I'll eat what I kill, right? I'll, I'll come. I'll bring you guys deals and stuff. And if you fund them, then you can make me. Well, Kelly is now building a... 14, 15,000 square foot home, right? Kelly's a multi, multi-millionaire today because we, we weren't so selfish with, okay, this is only a, the game is locked. Nobody else can have any equity. No, we, we made a lot of people millionaires as in the process of building the fund and bringing on lots of new partners, right? So that's number one. And, and seeing the value that he was bringing and not being in a position where we're like, okay, we're going to take his stuff and try to keep it. No, we see his value and give him value in return for his value in a beautiful way, right? So there's number one. Number two, we already touched on this a little bit with the, with the tenants. We would say, okay, we're going to put ourselves in their shoes. We're not going to be a scum lord and come in and try to you know, rape the money. The, no, we're going to say, how can we create value? Yes, we're going to make sure that the pricing is ratcheted up to the point where it's really competitive. But more important than that, before we ratchet up the pricing on everything, we're going to make sure that people really see the value in living there. And then from the bank standpoint, we become one of the, before the 2008 crisis, we saw that crisis coming because of one of the partners that I had that saw that coming early. And uh, we were able to get into a position where we were one of the first 20 funds in the country to be qualified on a top level purchasing platform with all the GSEs, with Freddie, Fannie, HUD, FDIC. So when a bank had 30 days to live, we would get a phone call. We would go in, the bank president by then is willing to negotiate. He's like, okay, 30 days from now, he's out of a job and his shareholders have a big fat zero if he doesn't get some massive liquidity. So we go in, look at their portfolio, say, okay, we're going to take that, that thousand unit apartment complex off your hands. I know you're into it $100 million. We're going to pay you $35 million cash today, give you the liquidity you need to stay in business. It's a win for the bank. The bank stays in business. They have that liquidity. It's a win for us because now we have the team to be able to create the value and manage it the way that it could. It's a win for my investors because we, we have smart leverage on it and we can create that return. And I can go through that with, 
a lot of other companies as well. The Attacking Anxiety and Depression Company, a perfect one that I did in my early 20s, right? We, we had a, a program, an audio and a workbook program that helped people change their negative habit patterns of thought that were creating anxiety and depression in the first place. And it was a $250 program, uh, cost us $30 to make, but it cost us like $200 in advertising just to get a client with our infomercials. It was kind of breaking even there, but we had a valuable product for them. And then we created a personal coaching program. Now, here's the thing. On the outside, this looks like this isn't going to work. These are people who can't even work a job because of their anxiety or depression disorders. They can't even leave their house. And I'm getting them to max out their credit card for $2,000 personal coaching program. And I can do that sleeping well at night. Why? Because I had a 100% money back guarantee. I, we had 97% success rate. If, if 12 weeks later, after lining them up with a personal coach and having them get the help that they needed, if they weren't living a normal life, if they weren't working a normal job, I would give them their $2,000 back. And that was less than 3%. The other 97%, now they're earning two dollars or $3,000 a month. Now they can mm -hmm. pay back that credit card. It's a true win for them. And it's a win for my employees. They're making good income. And the people who went through our program, we gave them a job as personal coaches in helping others. So I could create a true win-win-win. And that company I sold for $20 million when I was 29 years old, right? And now it was a public company with restricted stock. That's a whole different story. But it was, it was something where we created a true win-win-win for everybody across the board without anybody having to lose because the customers were paying $2,000 for something that was worth $20,000 in terms of their actual value in their life. I love this. And one thing that I've noticed that you heavily focus on that's allowed you to adopt this mindset is the trust in the product, the absolute trust in the product. If it's an investment opportunity, if it's a, if it's, if it's self-help course or, or, or teaching session, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a founder, what is your framework for okaying the product that you can take to market? Here's what I'm going to say. It depends on your customer and what they're looking for. And, and a true win-win-win has to come from that standpoint. I'll give you this example. Okay, you're, you're up in northern Alaska and you meet a, a guy who has a whole bunch of furs and you want to buy a bunch of furs, right? And you don't have cash. He only wants to trade. And you give him a, uh, uh, a Picasso painting, right? He's got, he's got a bunch of furs. They're maybe retail, they're worth $5,000, right? You give him a $20,000 Picasso painting, you've actually done him a disservice. Why? He can't do crap with that. It's gonna end up in his woodshed, right? But you give him a $200 gun, that he can go and, and shoot some more or some traps or whatever else. Now you've created a true win-win-win. You've got $5,000 worth of furs that you can go fur, you can go sell, whatever else. He's got a gun that he can actually use. And so you don't have to necessarily say, okay, I'm, gonna, I, I'm doing a good deal because I'm giving him a $20,000 painting. No, you're not, right? So find out, and this goes back to really putting yourself in your customer's shoes, right? With the, with the apartment complexes. Who are our tenants? 
Are they, do they people that play tennis? You know, do they need gold tile rods? No, they don't, right? They want the English as a second language. They want the bookmobile. They want Taco Tuesday. They want, they want a safe place they can have their kids. That's, that's a true win for them. And I can do that and spend a lot less money than putting gold towel rods in. See what I mean? And it's a true yeah. win for them. And so, so that's really the, the, the litmus test is saying, okay, if I can truly put myself in your shoes as my investor, as my employee, as my tenant, as my customer, put myself in your shoes and feel it from a heart standpoint. What is it that you really need and how can I create value for you in your life in this transaction? That's a true win. Last last question on 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 this part of your life because I think it's again fascinating how you look at all these different commercial problems that entrepreneurs are trying to solve for. What in this win 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 abundance mindset environment? What's your view on competition? I think competition is healthy. I I really do now. I don't play in a competitive world. I play on a creative plane because so many people are like, okay, I've got to crush my competition to get ahead. And, and understand that, that as long as that competition is healthy and it's encouraging you to play on a, on a creative plane, then that's good. If, if, it's, if it's tied to fear, if it's tied to hatred, it's tied to, to crushing others and whatever else, then then, then that's, not, that's not healthy. However, these are the kind of things that motivate us to be the best that we can be to create something of value. And, and, um, and, and it doesn't have to be in a place where we're crushing others. I like to use this example um, in playing on a creative plane instead of a competitive plane. So there's an island. There's 10 families on this island. And there's 10 men and they go, they go fishing every day to get enough fish for their family. And um, they're competing. Oh, I caught three fish today. I caught two. I only got one or whatever. That's great. You know, that's motivating. them. But then two of the guys start thinking on a creative plane outside of this whole competition thing. And they're like, okay, what can we do to make this easier and better for everybody? And those two guys come up with this idea of a net. And so at night when everybody else is watching the, the fire and everything else, they're out there with their wives, they're sewing this net. And sure enough, this thing works. They go and they catch enough fish for the entire island. Now, the problem we have at this point is 80% unemployment, right? Because <laughs> now you got eight guys that can't fish. Now, what do they do, right? A dysfunctional system would either have these guys try to compete and make a better net or a dysfunctional system would tax those two men 80% of their fish. A well-functioning system would encourage those other eight men to do things like one would get better at building boats and one would get better at building huts and one would get better at educating the children. And lifestyle as a whole for the entire island increases because of the creativity of those two guys that put together the net. Today, we live in a world just like that. And yes, if you consider that competition of saying, hey, how can we create a better mousetrap? How can we create a better net, a way to fish? Yeah. Then that's super healthy because we're in this world of expansion and creation. But understand that if you 
If somebody moves your cheese, if you ever read that book, Who Moved My Cheese, right? If something happens in your industry where somebody creates a net and your job is no longer needed, understand that that's the world that we live. And you can think on a creative plane and say, how can I continue to add value to the world in a way where I can have financial security for my family coming back to me because of the value that I'm adding? Now, as you all know, the Success Story Podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They have incredible podcasts, so please go check out their roster. But one of my favorite shows is Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew. You just have to understand that some of the smallest changes can have the biggest impacts on your life. And on Nudge, this is what Phil goes through. He speaks about evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every single episode is bite-sized, 20 minutes. It comes packed with practical advice from some of the most prolific uh, entrepreneurs, behavioral scientists in the world, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. I definitely recommend you go check it out. You should listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. I love this. And the last, the last piece, I guess, is really good to understand once you've built this empire, how do you transition into the next phase of your life? Walk me through exiting, uh, exiting uh, bridge investment. Walk me through, uh, you know, that point when you've achieved what most people can only hope to achieve, and you're trying to find what to do next. And I know now you have again on your website you have a, you know, thirty, thirty five, forty different things that you've done since then. But um, there's obviously a point in in your life where you, you know, you're like, listen, this is great. I've excelled professionally. There's a lot more that I have to do with my time on earth to sort of give back and to fulfill the thing that I wanted to you know, do from the very beginning. Um, so what does that point in your life look like? Well, uh, I'll say this. That decision actually came decades ago, way well before I, I started Bridge. And in a commitment that I made to myself and to the universe that... Um, that a large percentage of my time and my money would go to charity, would, would go to making a significant impact in the lives of others. Now, the work that I did and the value I put together from a business standpoint was all impact investing. It was creating value in the lives of others and having that value come back. But I also realized that there are things that aren't gonna create any financial gain. It can't be an, an impact investment. Instead, it there are people out there who really need things that I can offer them to help them live a, a peaceful life. And uh, for me, I decided a long time ago, I wasn't giving a whole bunch of money to guys on the side of the road that were asking me for drug money. That just didn't feel right. But a nine-year-old mm -hmm. child in a position completely outside of any decisions that she made, that was valuable. And uh, so I served on a lot of different charities. I helped out with One Life at a Time and the Make-A-Wish Foundation and the, the Ronald McDonald House and all these child-related charities. In fact, I was seven years on the board of directors for Make-A-Wish here in, in actually in Utah. And, um, and then I got a call from our attorney general. He said, Paul, he said, I know you've donated a lot of money to child-related charities. He said, I have uh, a Homeland Security agent that has found a bunch of children in Cartagena, Colombia that are being sold. I said, sold? Like, what do you mean sold? He said, these are 
kidnapped and trafficked children. These are these are children that are being sold for organ harvesting, sex trafficking. I said, are you kidding me? That happens? He said, yeah, this is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. And good people don't even know that it's happening. He said, there's more today than, I'm not talking about just children being abused at home, which we talked about separately. I sold human beings. There's more today than all 300 years of the transatlantic slave trade put together. And, and so they needed $50,000 to help rescue these kids. It's like 20 of them. I helped to fund that. And there's a movie coming out later this year called The Sound of Freedom. And Jim Caviezel, he plays Jesus, Passion of the Christ, Count of Monte Cristo. Jim plays the part of, of the Homeland Security agent who recruited me. The actor who plays me is the producer of the film. He is, his name is Eduardo Barasti. He plays a part of the multi-billion dollar fund manager who quits his job to go help rescue kids. And, and it's a beautiful, beautiful story about the, the identification and rescue of these kids. And it follows this story of the largest child rescue in history, 127 children in one day that we rescued in Colombia about 10 years ago. And, uh, and that, that is, I had gotten to the point in the fund where my equity as the founder and owner was earning me way more money than my salary was. And mm. I had a lot smarter people than me that we had hired, that we had put on, that were raising money and putting things together. And I decided, you know what? I'm set. I don't need another $100 million. I, don't, I, don't, I, I have enough to make a massive impact in the world. And my time and skill sets, I have a special set of skills from a previous life that makes me somewhat safe in a dangerous place, got me to the point where they actually recruited me to lead the undercover rescue missions of these children. And in the last 10 years, I have been a part of or led over 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries. And through our foundation, the Child Liberation Foundation and others that we have helped to fund and get started, over 5,000 victims have been rescued and returned to their family. And hundreds of bad guys are in prison today. And I was completely off-grid for, for 10 years. My first podcast was two months ago in talking about I these saw missions. And, and that's why I'm here with you today is because finally I'm like, you know what? My voice, my experience can inspire entrepreneurs to go build their companies and create a, a value in the world. But my experience in being in the pit of hell and pulling these children out and getting them back to their families is something that I believe that I can use that experience to not only liberate a 10-year-old from the clutches of a trafficker in, in Ecuador, but I can help liberate humanity and the, the negativity that is holding us back and, and the things that are actually driving that demand for something that horrible. And so that's the reason why I have stepped out of the undercover work then plus the movie coming out, et cetera. I'm not, it's not gonna be easy to be undercover along anyway. And so because of that, my, my goal now is, is in liberating humanity as a whole from what is holding them down in this negative, low vibration energy that, that is creating generational trauma that is holding us back from real ascension and being happy like we could. What fuels 
child trafficking. What are the things in the West that fuel? Is it is it prostitution? Is it what what fuels it? Because you mentioned a couple other very dark things like organ harvesting and whatnot. But I know I know that the sex trafficking obviously is a major issue too. I, I don't know much about the organ harvesting and all the other horrible well, atrocities. Well, the sex what trafficking is the biggest. There's there's a, okay. approximately 10 million children today in sexual slavery. Average age is 12 years old that they're brought into this horrible situation, right? This is in the and, U.S. And, 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 and globally as it's, well. The U.S. Globally. has major the issues. US, the U.S. is the number one producer and consumer of child um, of, of of child pornography and the the reason i was recruited to help lead these these undercover rescue missions is that the majority of demand for something this horrible for going down to columbia to be with a 12 year old the majority of that demand in second and third world countries comes from wealthy connected well-spoken businessmen in first world countries that's where it's coming from and it's big egos and for a long time so to answer your question and this is super important and this is the reason why i made this massive transition you know we talked about that transition point i made when i was a kid and it, the biggest transition of my life happened within the last four or five months and here's what it was 10 years ago on my first undercover rescue i'm sitting in this chair these traffickers have brought me all of these children. They bring out this 11-year-old girl standing up. She's not much taller than I was as I was sitting down. And she was shaking. And she had fear in her eyes as she was looking at me. And I, I, I couldn't blow my cover. I, 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 every cell in my body wanted to just say, hey, you're going to be fine. You're going to see your parents again. And I couldn't say that. And I made a commitment to myself and to God and the universe and the whole world that day that I would do everything in my power to eradicate that evil from the face of the earth. And when I was told that my skill sets with my background could do well in leading undercover rescue missions, that's what I did. And I did that for 10 years. And back then there was approximately 8 million children being sold. Today, that number is somewhere closer to 10 million. So I asked myself, if my goal is to eradicate this, then I'm not doing a very good job doing undercover rescues and pulling 20 children out at a time. <clears throat> These, I had to figure out how to solve the demand because what was happening is we were pulling 20 children out of hell and it would leave a vacuum and 20 more children would be getting sucked in to, to supply the demand. So I stepped back and said, okay, where is this demand coming from? Is it, is it just hardcore pornography addiction where somebody, you know, they, they get addicted, they need something harder to have that same fix and pretty soon they go down this dark road and for some of them, that dark road with, with is something younger and younger and pretty soon they're fantasizing about something they wouldn't have even thought was attractive five years ago. I thought that may, maybe where it was coming from is, it, you know, and, and anytime that you take a divine feminine a woman from a divine feminine to an object, you start going down a dark road, right? And so I thought that's where a big part of it was coming from. I realized that even that is a symptom of a deeper problem, okay? This, sim this deeper problem is this. Yes, there's 10 million children being sold, 
but that's a tiny number compared to where it's all coming from. There's over a billion women on this planet who were a victim of sexual violence as a child, most of them in their own home. One out of every four women. Now, the number of men is lower. It's about one out of every five, about 20% of men have been a victim of sexual violence. And, and one-fourth of them, literally 200 million men, it was under the age of 10 years old. So what's happening is this. It's generational trauma that is mm -hmm. not even being talked about. And some of it comes out in somebody... Now, God bless them. Many people, they grow up and they figure out their crap, right? And they're a good dad and they're a good husband. They're a good mother. And they, they're able to work through that. The average person who's experienced that kind of a trauma as a child, the average person is 52 years old before they remember or before they talk about it. They've raised their children. They've gone through their career. Now, and some of them hold it in with low self-esteem. Others get through it. Others, unfortunately, grow up to be contact offenders, right? Where they're either verbal abuse because they're dealing with this trauma or physical abuse or sexual abuse. And each one person that grows up that is a contact offender in that way is going to abuse a large number of children. And they're going to be the ones that are that are being drawn to go to a third world country and do some of these horrible things. And so I, what's, I what's the back. difference? I, I also that? want to know, just sorry, before we move off that, before you move off that point, what what is the difference between somebody that becomes a contact offender and somebody that just deals with their shit? It's choice. It's choice. It's a choice of of okay, okay. do I do I take that situation that happened to me as a child and use it like I did when I was beat up and you know and called names, everything else, use that as a motivation to lead with compassion, to lead with love. Mm -hmm. To, to put myself in the shoes of others? Or am I gonna take that and be hateful and vengeful to the world because of what they said to me, right? And so it's the same thing that happens as people move through their life, they, they have a choice. They have a choice of whether they pass on that trauma to others or whether they work through it. Now, there are tools that can help people shed that trauma in a, in a very, quick manner if they want to. In fact, that's why we're here in Mexico right now is we're looking for places to build some healing retreats that will be fully transformational experiences. There, there are, there are uh, some doctors that we work with in, in Peru and others that have these healing retreats that people come in for two or three weeks that are hardcore addicted to cocaine, to heroin, things like this and in three or four weeks can help them completely get over that addiction with, 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 uh, without any, uh, any re-addictions later, without any, mm -hmm. you know, all the other crap that comes when you're trying to shed something like that. So there are some holistic tools that you can work with that we can give people a, a 48 hour experience or a four day experience and literally transform their life in a way that 20 years worth of therapy couldn't do. And so that's some of the things that we're working on right now. But, but, and I'm putting together tools. Uh, I bought liberate-humanity.com and .org 
that liberate humanity within the next month we're going to have a whole bunch of tools on there different programs that people can use that they can download that can help them change their perceptions of themselves it's the exact same tools that we help people overcome anxiety and depression are things that we can help people overcome that childhood trauma and not defining themselves by what happened to them and change how what their self-talk when they look in the mirror and they can shed that negativity and come into a place of healing and light and and move forward into a place where they can have a positive impact in the lives of others so that's that's my big mission i believe we can save millions of children by starting from a place of compassion not compassion for these guys who have already hurt a child you know they need to go to prison right yeah. but what if we could capture that group before they ever pass that trauma on and we could help them heal before that trauma is ever passed on in any way in anger issues in in physical verbal abuse anything what if we could help them heal we could literally heal the world in less than one generation and this is how this I understand now. So this is how we actually solve the problem because again, the the undercover missions you're never gonna be able to bring eight to ten million plus people through undercover missions out of you know save ten million people. It's impossible. You can't. It's impossible. You, you, have have to, you have to you have to solve for you have to solve for demand. Yeah, you have to solve for the demand. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's rest, we could rescue all eight million of them today. And you would have in a year from now, they would be back in a bunch of other kids being traumatized in the same way because we haven't fixed the demand. Can I can I ask? And, and you know, we didn't really prep for this, so you you be as candid or as or if you don't want to go into it, that's fine. But but how did you deal with these undercover situations? I really want to understand how how you went through this, what it entailed, uh, just like the experiences as as respectful as as you can be. Absolutely. with this conversation because I think it's I think it's a conversation that has to happen and I think that you living it and, and being part of these undercover operations maybe paint a, a picture for what happens in these situations and what these children go through um, and and hopefully we can you know sort of make the point hit home even more so than it probably already does because you've you've literally had these experiences that many people obviously, do not have or, or or outside of watching a movie would never have known about i'll I'll, um, I'll answer it with a story there's a there's a documentary out called operation tucson tucson is the name of the airport in port-au-prince haiti and um, at the time of the filming of this i was still running undercover and so the majority of it was following tim the homeland security agent who recruited us etc yeah. but my team was the one that was on the ground in haiti many, many times to connect with the trafficking ring that that, that, that documentary showed the rescue of those kids. And, um, and so we were physically there. And, and in finding these kids, the first thing I need you to understand is this. This isn't a religious conversation, but I need you to know that I believe in God. Right? Most people believe in a supreme being. Some people call him Allah or the universe or whatever, goddess or Jehovah, whatever it is. God exists and cares more about these children than you and I ever could and knows exactly where they are. So the first night when I went into Haiti in finding these kids, it was about two in the morning. It was a bunch of Navy SEALs, Green Berets. They're all, you know, big muscles, tatted up and earrings, whatever else. And I said, guys, I said, can I take lead? Are you good with that? 
And they're like, yeah, Tim said you're really good at this. I'll see what you do. I said, okay, good. First things first, I need you to understand that how I see fear and faith. Most people think that faith is going to church and asking God to fix things in their life that they don't believe are going to be fixed. I said, that's, that's, that's not, faith is a, is a principle of power. It's the most powerful law in the universe. And it's simply this. It's the unwavering conviction that what I want to have happen will happen. It's, the, it's that power of the mind that we learn from the Brian Tracy tapes, et cetera, right? I said, I've used this to create everything in my financial career and especially in finding these kids. I said, it's difficult for people to have unwavering faith or unwavering conviction about anything. Should I start this new company? Should I marry this woman? Should I move to this new city? Because they don't know if it's in line with what God wants or whatever. For me, when I was doing the undercover work, it was very easy to have unwavering conviction that if there's a higher power in the universe, that higher power is not okay with these children being raped, period. So it was easy for me to tune into that energy. And so what I would do is, is focus on that and listen. Not, not following logic and protocol. I would listen from a heart standpoint, right? And I would say, okay, drive, just drive. Okay, stop right there. He said, that motorcycle gang guy? That, yeah, yeah. That, that, he said, what are you going to do? I said, that guy knows something. I can feel it. He said, this is a really dangerous area. We need to survey the area first. I said, no. I said, we don't have time for that. He's going to be gone. Now, this is the darkest, most voodoo-infested place on the planet at the time. Murder capital of the Western Hemisphere. Super dangerous. Two in the morning, right? And I said, guys, you need to stay in the van. You're going to intimidate him. And the Navy SEAL's like, he's like, are you stupid, Paul? I said, listen, I, I don't have two weeks to find kids. I'll buy you pink panties when we get home. That guy knows something. I get out and I walk up and this guy pulls up his shirt. And there's a gun that's sitting in his, in his pants. And mm -hmm. I'm just listening. I pull out a $100 bill and I hand it to him. He says, what's that for? I says, that's for you. You keep it. I got more for you if you can help me with something. I got a friend. He's going to be here over in the next few weeks, Super Bowl Sunday. We're going to have a party. And um, he likes 10-year-olds. You get me in touch with somebody who has what he's looking for. And sure enough, boom, he gets me in touch. We climb our way up and we get to what I call a level three trafficker. This level three trafficker is one who physically holds the children in captivity. It happened to be a female. Her name was Cho. And she sticks this key. We're in this dark, dangerous area. There's this door. It's, it's seven feet tall and about four feet wide. And it's a steel red door. She's no windows or anything else on this building. Sticks a key in this door, opens it up, and I see this dirt hallway and dimly lit lights with some cobwebs on the lights and multiple cell doors down the left-hand side. Cell doors, right? And with no windows or any access, she sticks a key in one of these cell doors, opens it up, it's about this wide, and in this little teeny room, dirt floor, concrete walls, no window, no lights, is a steel, it's not even a bed, it's a steel plank that's held to the wall with the, with the chain so you can fold it up, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a dingy little dirty blanket that was sitting on that. And to the left of that was this little girl. Now, in the movie, in the, the, the Operation Tucson, she's at the end. She's holding a teddy bear. She was 14. She was taken when she was seven. Her parents were killed in the earthquake. Nobody knew she was alive. The traffickers took her with a bunch of other children. And for seven years, 
she was sold 20 or 30 times a day to men who would rape her. And she's sitting on this concrete block on the dirt in this cell room, looks up at me with this blank look in her eye, like this happens every day. There's multiple doors with other children there. At the end of this hallway, there was this, this queen-size mattress where the unthinkable would happen. That little girl didn't speak for two weeks after we rescued her. Her very first words that she said were, I didn't think anybody would come. She had given up hope seven years before. Nobody knew she was even alive. We were able to find her family, extended family. She went back to school, learning to dance. Every one of these children has that story. And, and they're held in the most awful places that you can possibly imagine. And the only way we're going to fix it is to figure out how to heal humanity. We've got to figure out how to change how we see each other. When I can look at you as my brother, like really, truly, like we're energetically connected, heart to heart to heart. And when you can look at a woman as the divine feminine that she is and respect her for that and, and not let thousands of years of dogma make you believe in any shape or form that that woman is any lower in any way than a man, period, right? These are all kinds of things that are creating this negative low vibration energy in how we perceive each other and how we perceive sexuality and, and how, we, how we exchange energy between each other. We would never, ever do that to a child if we really understood who we were as, as divine sons and daughters of God and the connection we have with each other and with the universe and that energetic tie to all things. It wouldn't even cross our minds. And we would let go of that generational trauma before we pass it on to another. Your, um, the ability, the fact that you were able to do this, because I'm assuming when you, when you encounter these children, there's a period of time before you can actually go in and rescue them because you have to maintain undercover for it. And I can only imagine how difficult, like walking out of that situation is knowing that she may not be saved for another, I don't even know, seven days, month, what, I don't know what the logistics of these operations are, but you must, I don't know how anybody does that. I mean, I know people do it to save, I, you know, I know people so go that I cover, but I'm just, so I can sleep yeah. at night. I will, I will usually tell, especially if they're virgins, I'll give the trafficker extra money. I'll say, listen, I'm giving you money right now, extra, to ensure she is not touched, not once, between now and the park. Yeah. You understand? Not once, right? And same thing with some of the other ones, and we try to identify where they are and pull them out as soon as possible. And 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 yeah. I um, I was on one off. Because I just break, I just break down. I I just I like I think a lot of people would just break down. Normal people would just not be able to keep their shit together in a situation like that. 
I was in one op where I was sitting across this table with the, with the, the traffickers. And I had, a, I had a Navy SEAL that was standing behind me. Big dude. And um, good, huge heart. And uh, the trafficker, he leans forward and he goes, Pablo, he said, I have a gift for you. <clears throat> I said, really, what's your gift? And he shows me his phone, and there's an 11-year-old girl on his phone. He said, this is Princess. She's still a virgin. We just took delivery of some. She's my gift for you for this party. And he started talking about some really dark things. He said, have you ever been with a virgin? You know, all this. He started talking about horrible things you do to this little girl. And the Navy SEAL that was behind me, he's like, I got to go, you know, check the perimeter. Because the the, the traffickers knew that he was my bodyguard. I'm like, yeah, he's my bodyguard. He's my show bodyguard, my real bodyguard, right? So they're like, you know, they've got bodyguards. I've got They don't know he's a Navy SEAL. They think he's like a a bodyguard to some asshole who's going down to look for for girls. Yeah, Yeah. these are are big ego guys that have got Navy SEALs that are their bodyguards and whatever else. So he was there behind me. He took a walk around the restaurant. When we were debriefing later that night, he said, he said, when that trafficker gave Paul the phone and that little girl on there, that 11-year-old, he said, she looked like my daughter at home. He says, I was that close to taking out my weapon and ending it right there. He said, but if I, if I did that, we would have 50 plus children. We wouldn't know where they are. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard. It's dark. I've been into the darkest recesses of this planet, seeing that kind of thing. And it has motivated me like no other to figure out how to fix this problem. You know, I was looking up stats before this interview, and I, I read a very, a, a very depressing one because people are going to be listening to this and think, okay, there's a problem with with some some really fucked up people in the U.S. that go to these countries to for sexual tourism, and there's also a problem in some of these countries where, of course, I think there's like 426 million children that live in conflict zones, and that's where they're they're most likely to be abducted from. But I read a stat. In 2020, 35 states reported not, this is obviously dated, but I'm sure there's still stats we can find. 35 US states reported 953 victims of sex trafficking from child welfare systems. So that's stateside government agencies or, 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 or representatives or people that are involved in the child welfare system basically giving up children in the US to sex trafficking. So it's not a it's over there problem. Well, and, and here's it's, the thing, it's, you know, that the open border shouldn't be a left or right issue. The open border should mm-hmm. be a trafficking conversation because that's really what's happening there. And uh, um, there are millions of, of, of victims that are being trafficked across the border. In fact, here in the U.S., uh, there's, they've estimated somewhere between 250,000 and 400,000 children, average age of 12 years old, that are in sex trafficking in the U.S. And you're exactly right. The problem is, is in a broken system when it comes to the, the, um, the, the, the children that are being controlled by the state in some way, you know, in the foster programs, things like that. We need a better system there. And, and of course, we need to take away that demand. Um, but there are children all over the world that are suffering in the same situation. Mm-hmm. In fact, here in the U.S., you know, we, we talk about where that demand is coming from and, and, and the challenges from even a pornography standpoint. 
we had a company we worked with that had a piece of software. This software would go into the dark web. People thinking that they're anonymous on the, in the dark web, right? Went into the dark web and was identifying the global identifier numbers of individual computers that were downloading child rape videos, okay? Now here's a scary number. In one month in the United States, it identified 800,000 unique individuals who had downloaded a child rape video. That's a huge number. If you figure there's 350 million people in this country, maybe 100 million men that are over you know, 20 plus years old, mm -hmm. whatever, and, and that's our demographic there, then that's a million. What out of every 100 in any room you go in actually not just was downloading child porn, we're talking child rape videos. That's a massive number, right? So it goes that's, back that's to this whole thing. We've got a up. broken system where people and their perception of themselves and sexuality as a whole and their childhood trauma and all of these things are contributing factors that if we don't figure out how to heal humanity, this problem will continue to be worse and worse every year. Um, I, 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 want to, I want to sort of give you the floor to uh, any, any last sort of words on this piece before, before we sort of move on from this. Uh, it's been a super heavy topic, um, but I just want to say any any questions that I first of all thank you for for doing this all. Uh, really, I think it's incredible work, obviously. Um, but are there any questions that I should have asked you about this, or any things that we didn't go into that not, I think are important specific. to the audience I, to hear? I will say this: there's such a beautiful light at the end of the tunnel. This doesn't have to be dark. You know, sometimes I got to share the darkness so I can say, okay, now let's talk about this. Let's talk about yeah. what needs to happen to change to really help people move forward. The, the movie, The Sound of Freedom, the reason we named it that is that the most beautiful sound that I ever heard was after the agents came and stormed the party and arrested everybody and the Child Protective Services people came in with the children and they started laughing and, and singing with the children and that Sound of Freedom was the most beautiful sound that I ever heard. I started crying. I turned to Sean and I said, bro, I said, I've spent my whole life making rich people richer. I want to make a difference. What do you need? And that's when he said, mm -hmm. Paul, he said, the majority of demand for things like this comes from guys who are wealthy business owners. He said, I can't teach my Navy SEALs how to wear a $50,000 watch and a $4,000 suit and negotiate a multi-million dollar deal. He said, I've never found an ultra successful business owner who's had the training that you've had. He said, if you're willing mm -hmm. to be the bait, I'll change your whole life. And, um, and that was, that was the beginning and the most beautiful experiences of my life have been the rescue of these kids and seeing them return to their families or finding adoptive families for these kids, etc. So there is a beautiful light at the end, but here's something important as well. <clears throat> From a pure compassion standpoint, people ask me, a lot. They say, Paul, how can you go face to face with somebody selling you an eight year old and have not have them see the anger and the hatred in your eyes? And my answer surprises them. <clears throat> I say it's because I love them. You can't love them. You know, they're selling a child. No, I, I love the innocence of that child more. And I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure they never hurt another child again. But I've realized 
that if I'm ever, ever judging another human being, whether that's for cutting me off on the freeway or cutting me out of a business deal or, or selling me a child, if I'm ever judging another human being, there's a 100% chance that I don't have enough information to make that full judgment. I don't know. I don't know if that guy cutting me off on the freeway, if his daughter's in the hospital. I don't, I don't know if that guy cutting me off out of a business deal, if he's just really broken inside. I don't know if that guy's selling me a child, if he was raped as a child. He probably was. And there was probably a thousand bad things that happened to him and a thousand bad decisions he made to get him to the point where he thought that that was okay to sell that child. And again, I'm gonna do everything in my power to ensure he never hurts another child again. But I can do so from a place of love and compassion. I can ensure he's behind bars from a place of love and compassion. And I can hope and pray that that, that trafficker can find some redemption. That they can learn the, the, the darkness of their ways and get to a point where they can heal. And it may take 10 or 20 years. But when we can start looking at every person on the planet from that degree of compassion, especially the people who have dealt with massive childhood trauma themselves, who haven't passed that on to somebody else yet, but are holding that pain, if we can love them and help them heal before they become contact offenders, that's how we fix the problem. I love this. Okay. Um, where can people reach out to you? Where can people go to connect and learn more? Where do you want to send people? Yeah, I, for a long time I had Paul Hutchinson official, but that's too long to write. <laughs> you, can, you can type in soulhealer007.com and that'll take you there. But our, our new Instagram and everything else and the new website is liberate.humanity. Liberate.humanity. Okay. Uh, and then the liberate-humanity.org.com will be the websites coming on soon um, that'll have a lot of tools that people could use to heal. I have a book coming out soon called Are You Listening? Not Are You Listening With My Hand On My Ear, but Are You Listening With My Hand On My Heart? Talking about using the power of divine guidance that all of us have in building companies and finding the children, etc. You can also go and support the foundation. You can go to uh, you can just Google Child Liberation Foundation. You can go to liberateachild.org or liberatechildren.org. And um, I love the word liberate. I like liberate a child, liberate humanity, and uh, liberate children because that's really what it's about is, uh, is creating that liberation for all people, from ourselves, from our past, from a captor. Whatever it is, if we can help people liberate themselves, we can transform humanity. Last question. I ask everybody this. You've had incredible success with the variety of things that you've done over your life and your career. At this point in your life, how do you define success? I have a quote on my wall. When I was a child, when I was a child, when I, child, when I was a teenager, I had a bunch of Ferraris and Lamborghinis and I had a quote that said, he had the most toys wins, right? I now have one that says, he who has a powerful, positive impact in the most lives wins. That's what it's about. That's what true success is. And you can make money while having a powerful, positive impact in the lives of others. That's it.
I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own cost and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
Amazon.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 